Please follow along as I read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit upon this gathering of your people and that you would fill this place with the knowledge of the truth. We pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would be opening our eyes and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your Word, that you would convince us of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the greatness of your grace toward sinners who come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Do this supernaturally by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The famous pastor, theologian, activist, John Newton, was born on August 4th, 1725. John Newton, in his younger days especially, was an extremely sinful and immoral man. Uh, was well known, actually, even among gatherings of sinful people as an exceedingly great sinner and an exceedingly uh, vile and vulgar man. Uh, he served for many years aboard slave ships, engaged in the slave trade uh, in England, between Africa and England. And he participated and engaged in things aboard those ships that propriety would not permit me to disclose in a mixed setting like this. He was an exceedingly sinful and immoral man. And as the story goes, he was saved miraculously aboard a ship in the midst of a storm by the grace of God. And throughout the rest of his life, the next 40 or 50 years or so, this idea of God's grace shown to an unworthy and undeserving, undeserving sinner regulated John Newton's thinking in a most profound way. He eventually became a pastor. He became an Anglican priest, and he eventually penned the most well-known hymn in Christian history that, as a matter of fact, exalts the doctrine of God's grace, and that hymn, of course, is Amazing Grace. And he eventually played a part in the campaign to end slavery uh, in England alongside his partner and disciple, really, uh, William Wilberforce. He died on December 21st, 1807, and as he was dying, He's reported to have said to a friend these words, although my memory is nearly gone, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. 
This was a man who knew the most flagrant and extreme forms of immorality in his life before coming to Christ. And yet, here he is, 40 years or so on from his conversion, and he uses the present tense. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. The idea of native sinfulness was very large in John Newton's mind, but what looms still larger was the idea that God had shown grace to an undeserving sinner in Christ Jesus. It's fundamental to John Newton's self-awareness. It pervades his writings. It pervades his hymns that he's a great sinner, but that God and his grace in Christ provided a great Savior. Well, this perspective, large thoughts of our own sinfulness, large thoughts of God's grace, ought to be fundamental to the self-awareness of every true Christian. As we think of ourselves, our identity, who we are, we should be conscious of this truth. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. I am sure that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And it's at this point I would give a word to you visitors who are here. Uh, Maybe uh, a friend invited you today or you found us online or heard about the church in some way. If there's anything I would have you know about us as a church, uh, it is this, that we are a gathering of sinful people who have been saved by the manifold, merciful grace and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Uh, Sinners born in sin, uh, sinners, though saved by the grace of God, who still have sin struggles, and sinners who depend daily on God's grace to cover us and to save us and to be like a refuge for us. Now, we've been in a series the last couple of weeks, a series of sermons we've entitled The Happy Church. And in this sermon, I'd like us to consider the effect that this perspective on ourselves, namely, uh, that we are sinners saved by the grace of God, I want to consider the effect that perspective should have on our church life together, our corporate life together. Two weeks ago, we said that in the happy church, the membership functions as a family. And last week, we said that in the happy church, every member is to be valued and esteemed. And today, we will consider the following principle. In the happy church, the members understand the dynamics of sin and grace and their bearing on church life. In the happy church, the members of that church understand the dynamics of sin and the dynamics of grace, and they understand the bearing that those dynamics have on our life together as a church. Uh, We'll follow this outline this morning, and we'll actually turn to a number of passages, though we'll start in Ephesians 2. Uh, Three headings this morning. Number one, we are all sinners. Number two, we all need the grace of God. And number three, what that means for church life or implications for church life. So consider with me first this first and very simple heading. We are all sinners. Three simple biblical truths I want to convey here. First of all, we're all born in sin. We're all born in sin. And we see that plainly in Ephesians chapter 2. If you can look again at the first three verses, Paul, writing to Christian people, says, You were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, unless we think that Paul is saying, uh, you Ephesians were a particularly sinful group of people. He ends these verses by saying, like the rest of mankind. You were dead in your sins. You were under the dominion of Satan. You were living out your lives in sinful and immoral ways, just like everyone else in the world, just like the rest of mankind. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David's famous statement of repentance after his affair with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's husband. He says in verse 5 of Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That idea of being born, even conceived as a sinner, someone with a sin nature, someone born dead in sin. We've been in a series in the Gospel of John. We've broken from that series for the summer. But those of you who have been in the series should be familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 19. This is the judgment or this is the verdict that light has come into the world, that light being Christ himself. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That is to say, natively, born in sin, conceived in sin. And we are born with a palate, with taste buds of the heart that love and savor the taste of sin. Love and savor the taste of darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. That's true of everyone born under the sun. We're all born in sin. Second truth under this first heading. We are all, that is, we who are in Christ, are all saved from sin. We are all saved from sin. That's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Those who are in Christ are saved from their sin, saved from the guilt of sin, saved from the penalty of sin, such that God looks on us now, and rather than seeing us as consigned under his wrath, we're under his favor, forgiven of sin, pardoned of sin, justified in his sight. And so now the guilt of sin is no longer an issue for us. Not that we never do things that make us feel guilty, but in terms of a forensic verdict before a holy God, we're considered justified in his sight. The penalty of sin, the wrath of God, the just wrath of God due to our sin is no longer an issue for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are granted justification and we are granted eternal life forever in heaven with the Lord Jesus. We sing as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. We who are in Christ have been saved by the grace of God from the guilt and penalty of sin. But now this is very important. The Bible teaches that Christians, disciples, those who are followers of Christ and have been born again, are not only saved from the guilt of sin, but we are also saved from sin's power and dominion in our lives. In conversion, in salvation, it's not just that God makes a legal pronouncement, this sinner's justified in my sight, but in conversion, we're actually born again, the Bible says. Uh, we undergo a fundamental change. Uh, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have 
become new. And so this fundamental change brings about a change in our attitude and a change in our perspective and a change even in our relationship towards sin. Not just that we're not guilty now before the law of God, but sin is no longer to have dominion over our lives in the same way that it did before we were saved by the grace of God. So this is taught in many passages in the Bible, and in the New Testament especially. I'll mention one. You don't need to turn there, but it's in Romans 6. Romans 6, after celebrating the grace of God in Christ and celebrating our union with the Lord Jesus and our salvation, this is what the Apostle Paul says. So you also must consider yourselves, you Christians, saved by the grace of God, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You are to conceive of yourself as having a new relationship to sin. Whereas in your former days you loved darkness rather than light, John 3, Paul says here in Romans 6, you're to reckon yourself, consider yourself, think about yourself, understand yourself relationally to be dead to sin and to be alive to God. Let not sin therefore reign or have dominion in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The Bible teaches that the Christian is not only saved from the guilt and penalty of sin, but the Christian wonderfully supernaturally is saved from the power of sin, the dominion of sin reigning in our lives. Sin no longer reigns over us in the way that it did when we were outside of Christ. This is the idea contained in that very famous old hymn, you know that song, Rock of Ages? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Look, I need to be considered righteous before God and have the guilt of my sin taken care of. But I also need healing and deliverance from the power of sin that so controlled me and animated me and worked me like a puppet before I came to faith in Jesus Christ. So every Christian is born in sin. Every Christian is saved from sin, both sin's guilt and sin's power. But now thirdly, under this first heading, and most importantly for our purposes this morning, though having been born in sin, saved from sin, sin is an ongoing experience in every believer's life. Sin is an ongoing experience in every believer's life. That is to say we're still sinners, we're still sinful, we still commit sins. Though we are saved from sin, and though we are given God's Spirit, and though we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin, sin is still an ongoing reality in every believer's life. Two texts I'll mention, one I'll ask you to turn to, one I'll just read aloud, the one I'll read aloud, it's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we, again, we being believers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if, if you say you don't have sin, that's a falsehood. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we often think of that verse maybe in evangelism. We love to tell a sinner outside of Christ, if you confess your sins, the Lord Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that's true. You can say that to anyone under the sun. But the verse is intended for Christians who still have as part of their experience ongoing sin struggles. That's the original purpose of that verse. And the comfort is if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. That idea that Jesus appears as our advocate, He appears as a lawyer. If you've ever been in very serious trouble, you might need to call a lawyer to advocate for you. That's something of the idea. Jesus appears as our advocate with the Father, and He pleads the merits of His blood on our behalf. Now, the second passage is Romans chapter 7, and I want to ask if you would turn there. It's such a crucial text for Christians to understand if they're going to make sense of their own uh, experience in the Christian life. Romans chapter 7, and I want you to follow along as I read verses 14 through 25. Again, the idea I'm trying to convey is that sin is an ongoing experience in every believer's life. And listen to how the Apostle Paul works this out in his own experience. Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, this passage is complicated in some ways, but there really is a very simple point I think Paul is getting across. He recognizes as a Christian man a certain duality in his own heart, certain warfare that's going on, uh, the sinfulness of his native flesh at war against his regenerate new nature that wants to please Christ, that wants to uphold and delight in the law of God, and yet he finds these impulses and these struggles, and it's tortuous to him, it's agonizing to him, such that he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't want these struggles anymore. But Paul, in a very candid and transparent sort of way, is just recognizing, I still struggle with sin. And it's a burden to me. It's discouraging to me. I wish it wasn't so, and I'm looking to Christ 
to deliver me from this ongoing sin struggle. Well, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that Christians recognize that sin is part of their ongoing experience, even as Christians. And that in the Christian life, there are built-in mechanisms for repentance and confession and for pardon and forgiveness. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, the most famous chapter in his life is his nailing of the 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. The very first thesis, those 95 theses, says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Not a momentary episode that we look back on when, you know, we, when we repented, but rather there's a life of repentance, a life of going to God and looking for fresh pardon and fresh grace. Because Christians still sin, all the time, in fact. And it's just a fact of the Bible that's presented to us. We're saved by grace, we're born again by the Spirit of God, we're made a new creature in Christ Jesus, but we still struggle with sin. Now, why is this point so important to emphasize? It might seem very fundamental, vindicated in your own experience, but why am I emphasizing this point? Because I think a proper understanding of sin and the proper expectations with respect to sin and holiness are like keys that unlock the door to Christian growth. If you can understand or write the dynamics of sin, if your heart's expectations are calibrated to the Bible's teaching on what the presence of sin in your life as a believer might look like, it's like the pieces are set. It's like the lines are drawn, and we can proceed in Christian growth and in the Christian life with proper expectations for how we're going to battle and fight and proceed and move on and seek to grow in godliness. If we don't have the proper expectations and understanding for the presence of sin in our lives, we'll either become hopelessly discouraged because we'll see things in our lives that are so disappointing to us, so discouraging to us. We'll think, why is this here? Did I ever really believe on the Lord Jesus? Am I really a Christian? Why is this sin present in my life? We'll have to be hopelessly discouraged. Or we'll become cavalier and proud and we'll think, well, sin, sin's not an issue for me. I'm a Christian. I shouldn't really think about going to God day after day and repenting and confessing and finding new grace and all of that. Become hopelessly cavalier and become a prime target for Satan's attacks. But the New Testament writers would have us understand something about what the presence of sin in our lives means and what that indicates for our experience, what that means for our experience as believers. So this is the first point. We are all sinners. We're all sinners. And what should we understand from these texts about sin as it relates to the church? First, that the church is filled with men and women who have been born with a sin nature. Secondly, that the church is filled with men and women who have been saved from their sins, both sin's guilt and sin's power. And thirdly, that the church is filled with people who, though saved from sin and regenerated by God's Spirit, still struggle with sin as part of their ongoing experience. All right, now the second major heading. We all need God's grace. So we're all sinners. Secondly, very simply, 
We all need God's grace. And again, there's three ideas to convey here. First of all, we are saved by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The Apostle Paul couldn't be clearer. Salvation is not the result of our doings, of our workings, of our actions, of our penance or something like that. Salvation is the product of the free, unmerited, unearned favor and grace of God, which here is described as a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it. You didn't merit it. But God, because he is a God full of steadfast love, mercy, and compassion, and grace, he sets that grace upon undeserving sinners saves them, makes them alive together with Christ. That's the first point. Second, under this heading, we're saved by the grace of God. Now, secondly, we persevere by the grace of God. That is, we continue in the Christian life by the grace of God. Now, it's important here that I get really precise with language. It is true to say we are justified by faith. We're justified by faith, alone. Justified by faith apart from works of the law, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3. God justifies the wicked, Romans 4 says. Our works don't enter the equation. It is not accurate to say that we persevere by faith alone. That's not accurate. It's not what the Bible teaches. We persevere by a combination of faith and striving, and working, and effort, and sweat. Now, some of you are having a little internal anxiety about what I'm saying, okay? Again, I'm going to be very precise with language here. It would be accurate to say that we are saved by grace alone, and I think it would be accurate to say we persevere by grace alone. In grace, not faith. Okay? But we have to understand what we mean by that. Now, the Bible teaches that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to exert effort. We're to exert ourselves in the work of holiness. But we're to understand that that working, that striving, that exertion itself is the product of the grace of God. See what I'm saying? We're saved by grace, we persevere by grace. But don't think grace is like a laser beam that zaps you and makes you persevere. So I don't want to be bitter, or I don't want to lust, or I don't want to gossip, or I don't want to lie. Well, God's just got to beam me with grace power, and then I'll be animated to please God and to do what's right. That's not the idea at all. And there's two texts I'll mention to establish this point. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder. I strove. I exerted myself. I sought to please God and to obey his word and to do what is right. I worked harder. But when I look back, I recognize that even that working, 
That striving was the product of the grace of God. What does it feel like to have God's grace at work in you? It feels like sweating. It feels like striving. It feels like working. It feels very much like you're doing something in your own power. But as you look back upon your success and your battles with sin, or as they say in the NFL, upon further review, you see that that was the grace of God at work. When, When I was looking at that device, and I was so tempted to view something that would be the enemy of my holiness and my perseverance in the faith, and I I had to strive, and I had to think, and I had to call to mind Bible verses that I'd worked to memorize, and I had to struggle, and I put the phone down, and I didn't sin in that way. Well, how did that happen? Well, you worked very hard. You were striving. You were exerting effort to mortify sin and to honor God in your body and in your mind. But you look back and say, now how was that possible? Where did the power to say no to lust come from? Surely it was the grace of God at work within me. And so Philippians 2.13, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. You work. You strive. But you must recognize that working and that striving is the product of the grace of God. So we're saved by the grace of God and we persevere by the grace of God. Our killing of sin, our putting off of the flesh, and our putting on of Christ, and all the exertion that requires, that is seen to be the product of the grace of God. But when we talk about perseverance in the faith, it's not just that God gives us grace to grow in holiness and in godliness and in Christ-likeness. It's also that we who still struggle with sin every day need to go to God again and again with our sin and experience fresh grace. So it's not just grace to help us in our fight against sin. It's grace to save us and to forgive us and to help us when we sin. Does that make sense? We persevere by grace. That is, grace is working within us as a principle of power to help us to overcome sin, and grace is there for us when we sin and when we fail. We don't just depend on God's grace to help us not to sin. We depend on His grace to help us when we sin. You didn't just need the grace of God when you first believed. You need the grace of God today, like right now to clothe you in the righteousness and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to come to Christ again and again and again to find fresh grace, fresh forgiveness, fresh cleansing. We never cease needing grace. We never outgrow our need for grace. We're meant to come to God daily and find mercies that are new every morning because my sins are present every morning and I gotta go to Jesus and I gotta find in Him the same grace that I found when I first believed. I can confess my sins to him, and I can know he's faithful and just to once again, for the millionth time, extend grace to me, to help me to persevere as a believer on that same grace by which I was saved. Now the third point under this heading, we're saved by grace, we persevere by grace. Third point, we are called to reflect God's grace to others. We're called to reflect God's grace to others. 
as those who have experienced the grace of God, we are meant to convey that grace to our brothers and sisters. The grace of God shown to us is meant to produce graciousness in us. God's grace to undeserving people creates, generates, produces gracious people who reflect God's grace in their relationships with one another. Just one of the ways this comes to expression, Ephesians 4, verse 31. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's been a paradigm of grace displayed in the cross of Christ and in His gracious disposition towards sinners, we're to reflect that disposition toward one another. You've been forgiven as a sinner based upon the grace of God, undeserved, unmerited. Now reflect that grace to others. You forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven you. In Colossians 3, after magnifying the grace of God in Christ, and saving us and raising us together with Christ, Paul gets to what that means for the church body and how they live together. And he says this, Colossians 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Here's the very simple point of these passages. When God saves a man or woman, He implants within that individual a principle of grace, whereby they too are to convey grace to others. The recipients of grace, the recipients of free pardon, the sinners who know their sin and feel their sin and yet have experienced full forgiveness, they are transformed into forgiving people, gracious people, loving people. We would all do well to think more upon that story in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 7. There, Jesus is in the home of the Pharisees. And this woman who is known for being an especially sinful woman, an immoral woman, she comes into the setting with those men and with Jesus and she weeps and she falls down before Jesus and she's wiping his feet with her tears and with her hair. And the Pharisees are offended by this. How could Jesus associate with such a person? And Jesus uses an illustration. He talks about someone who owed just a little bit of money and they're forgiven that debt. And then someone owes a lot of money, and they're forgiven that debt. Now, who was more grateful? Who loved more? And the Pharisees say, of course, the person who had the greater debt. And Jesus says, this woman, he commends her for what she's done. Those who have been forgiven much, he says, love much. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who have been shown grace become purveyors of that grace. Do you think of yourself, my brother, my sister, as having been forgiven much? Well, some. Not as bad as some other people I know. Yeah, I've been forgiven some. If you think of yourself as being forgiven a little bit, the principle holds true. You will love only a little bit. 
you will extend grace only a little bit. But if you have this awareness that Christ has cleansed me from how many millions of sins, whether or not they came to expression in ways that our culture, our climate would consider vile and terrible and immoral, I know that I'm a wretch saved by the grace of God. I know that's true of me. I know I've been forgiven much. The principle is those who have that awareness, well, they'll know in their experience what it is to love much. Those who are aware of how great grace has been in their own lives, they will be motivated and empowered to extend that grace to others. So what are we meant to see under this second heading about the church? Well, everyone in the church is saved by the grace of God. Everyone in the church is persevering by grace. That is, they depend on that grace every day. And thirdly, the Bible tells us that we are to reflect grace toward one another. Now the third major heading, and this is the whole point of the sermon. That's all foundation. Now the third point of the message. What does this mean for church life? We're to have this self-awareness like John Newton, that we're great sinners saved by the grace of God. What implications will that have for our corporate life together and how we live as a family of God in this place? Well, we can list dozens of implications. I'm just going to list four of the big ones that we see in the New Testament. If we understand the dynamics of sin and grace, how will we live together in the church? This is a sermon about the church, after all. So what implications will understanding of sin and grace have for our life together as a church? Number one, we will sympathize with our fellow sinners in the church. We will sympathize with our fellow sinners in the church. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. So we won't be surprised by sin in our brothers and sisters. We won't judge them harshly. We won't move to condemn them or censure them. We recognize we're sinners just like them. We're all in this sinful mess together born in sin, still struggling with sin, we'll be moved to sympathy with them. We'll possess a sense of solidarity with them. I'm in this sinful mess with you. I'm not surprised by your sin. I understand how sin works. I understand that though we're saved from sin, sin still is at work in our lives. I've read Romans 7. I get it. I'm not surprised by your sin. There's a very, very good book on marriage. I think it's by Paul Tripp. It's called, What Did You Expect? What did you expect? Very simple idea. Two sinners get married, and they're involved in one another's lives in the most intimate of ways. Well, what did you expect? Perfect bliss and harmony at all times? Just, just constant joy, exhilaration, and pleasure in one another's arms? What did you expect? Two sinners who need the grace of God every day. What did you expect? Now, all the married couples in them were smirking for some reason. You get two sinful people together, and there's sins all over each other now. I think there's going to be some conflict. There's going to be some tension. There's going to be some volatility in the relationship, some things that have to be worked out. What did you expect? Well, that same question can be asked to people in the church. The Lord has saved a group of people, sinners from disparate backgrounds, with all sorts of baggage. He saved them by grace. 
He lumps them all together in one body, and then he tells them, moreover, they have to be all up in each other's business, like exhorting each other daily and bearing each other's burdens and all of that. I think we're going to run into some problems, right? What did you expect? Well, it's a good question as we think about our life together as a church. Are we going to be surprised that sin's present here? Are you going to be surprised that some people in the church are going to offend you at times? They're going to do things that disappoint you? Are we going to be surprised when you sin against us? What did you expect? The Bible teaches that we're sinners saved by the grace of God and that we're saved by God's grace, regenerated by God's Spirit. We still struggle with sin as part of our ongoing experience. We won't be surprised by sin in the lives of our fellow believers. We know we're just like our fellow sinners. We share the same sin nature, and though we have been saved from sin, we all still struggle with sin as part of our ongoing experience. We recognize that we're all saved by grace, and we still depend on that grace every day. And I am to recognize as one who has experienced the grace of God in Christ that I am enabled to extend that grace to my sinning brother and sister. And I can have the expectation that when I sin, my brother or sister will extend grace to me. If sin is part of the ongoing experience of every Christian, then it's going to be part of the ongoing experience of every church. This is so crucial to remember when we've been sinned against. My sin against you or your sin against me should not be a surprise. This is part of life in the church. What did you expect? The church is a gathering of sinners saved by the grace of God. It's almost like one big rehab group. The Lord's brought us all together. And corporately now, we're to fight to mortify our sin and put to death our sin and to grow in godliness, recognizing that we're all still former addicts. We are people who formerly had sin as a power reigning in our mortal bodies. And, and though we've been saved by the grace of God, it's still present, and I hate it, and I don't want it, and I'm trying to cut it out at the root. We're all having that struggle, all having that experience if sin is part of the ongoing experience of every Christian, it's going to be part of the ongoing experience of the church. But what should be our posture toward our sinning brothers and sisters? Well, we're not to judge them, and we're not to condemn them. We're to sympathize with them. We're to recognize I, too, am made up of the same stuff as them. We're to sympathize with one another. You think on Christ's sympathies with us. It's a wonderful teaching brought out most powerfully in the book of Hebrews. Christ is said to be a sympathetic high priest. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, the old King James says. He's without sin, but he still sympathizes with sinners having been tempted like they have been. And he's sympathetic to us in our sins. Well, how much more so we who have sinned and we who still have within our bodies regular struggles with sin, and we feel that warfare Paul talked about in Romans 7, how much more so should we be enabled to sympathize with one another? Hey, I know what that's like. I know what you're going through. Hey, I, I know I'm a sinner. I experience that all the time. We should be able to sympathize with our brothers and sisters who struggle with sin. And there is something deeply broken about a Christian who stands in judgment over his fellow sinners as though he hasn't shown, excuse me, he hasn't known what it's like to stand before Christ naked and ashamed and exposed and then to receive pardon and grace and clothing from him. It's not a biblical instinct, not a Christian instinct 
to look at a sinning brother and sister and just be disgusted, like, how is that even possible? How can such a person act in such a way? That sounds very much like those Pharisees who looked upon that woman and thought, she doesn't belong here, not in this place. Something very sub-Christian about that instinct. Rather, when we see sin, we should see something of ourselves. That's me, that's us. We're sinners who need the grace of God. I'm not surprised by this. Moreover, I feel sympathy with this sinning brother, this sinning sister. Our common experience of sin in ourselves and our common experience of the grace of God should create in us the deepest sympathies with one another. Now the second point, implications for the church. Secondly, we will be patient and long-suffering with one another. We will be patient and long-suffering with one another. In the book of Ephesians, there's actually not a single imperative verb in the first three chapters. Uh, We're not told to do anything in the first three chapters. It's all an exposition of the grace of God in Christ and what God has done to save us from sin. And then in Ephesians 4, we get to a long list of imperatives. So here we are in chapter 4. Paul's finally going to tell us to do something. And what does he say when we get to chapter 4? He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You've been saved by the grace of God. You've been elected by His love, set upon you before the foundations of the world unconditionally, not as the product of anything present in you. Now, what are you to do about that? Well, you're to be patient with your brothers and sisters. You're to bear with one another in love. In other words, you who are painfully, embarrassingly aware of your own sins and wonderfully aware of the grace of God in Christ, you're to be patient. You're to be long-suffering. You're to bear with your brothers and sisters in love. You've been saved by the grace of God. Now show that grace to one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, Paul says in verse 4, love is patient and love is kind. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're called to love one another, and what does that love look like? Paul says it's patience, it's kindness, it's bearing all things, it's believing all things, it's hoping all things, it's enduring all things. This is often read at weddings. That's in every way appropriate. But this is a passage given to the church. Like you're not just supposed to think about your spouse in these ways. You're to think about the people sitting to the right of you and to the left of you and the front of you and behind you this way. I'm going to bear with this person in love. If I love this person as I'm called to by God, I'm to be patient with them. I'm to be kind. I'm to be long-suffering. I'm to believe all things. I'm to hope all things. I'm to bear all things in my relationship toward them. Often when people refer to Matthew 18, it's the famous passage on church discipline, if a brother sins against you, go, tell him his fault. And if he receives you, if he hears you, you have won your brother. If he doesn't, then you bring two or three witnesses. If he doesn't hear them, then it goes to the church. And if he does not listen to the church, treat that one like an unbeliever. I've heard that passage used as a license to be very severe toward one another in our dealings with sin. 
This is license to be, we're so serious about sin. If you sin against me and you can't acknowledge it, well, we're going to put you out of the church. Do you know what is the very next verse in Matthew 18? Peter says, Lord, how often do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? What does Jesus say? No, no, no. Seventy times seven. This is not license to be severe with sin. Rather, our general posture is to be forgiving toward our brothers and sisters. Your brother sins against you. You talk to him. He repents to you. You forgive. Then he does it again. He repents. You forgive. He does it again. You forgive. Seventy times seven. Well, seems like he's insincere. Seems like he's not bearing the fruits of repentance. Surely there comes a point where I'm to stop forgiving. Jesus says, no. We're gracious in our dealings with our brothers and sisters. We extend grace, forgiveness. We're ready to extend pardon because we know Christ has had far worse from us. How many times have you had to appear before God again and again and again? Lord, I've done it again. I've sinned again to an embarrassing degree. Well, how can we then look to our brother or our sister who sinned against us and think, no, I, I can't. Not a tenth time. I'm sorry. That's not a sign of Christian health. That's not a sign of someone who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and is acquainted with the grace of God in Christ. No, rather, if we are aware that we have sinned much, if we're aware, like John Newton, that I am a great sinner, Christ is a great Savior, we will then become purveyors of that very same grace in our relationships with one another. We'll be patient and we'll be kind as Christ has been patient with us, as God has been long-suffering with us. How can we be anything but patient and long-suffering with one another? The Bible would commend patience in our relationships. The Bible would commend bearing with one another in love. We should not be easily offended in our relationships with each other. Quickly to take offense. Rather, we should be eager to extend grace, eager to cover a multitude of sins in love. It's not a virtue to be easily offended. Short fuse is not honoring to God. He was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Is it true of you? Is it true of me? That rather we're quick to anger? quick to offense. We got a little bit of love and grace we'll extend, but once it's all gone, that's it. Now, we're to be like God in this. He's been patient with us, long-suffering with us. We won't be easily offended. Church should not be filled with prickly people, just very easily disrupted and disturbed by the slightest offense. And we're ready to overlook fault. We're ready to forgive. We're ready to extend grace and love, the sort of love that covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now the third implication, and I'll move more quickly here. We will be quick to repent and quick to forgive in our relationships with one another. Quick to repent, quick to forgive in our relationships with one another. In the happy church, among the congregation that understands the dynamics of sin and grace and their bearing on church life, it should be easy to repent, and it should be easy to forgive. 
Happy churches are churches in which it's easy to repent and easy to forgive. Isn't that true in marriage? A happy marriage is that marriage in which it's easy to repent, easy to acknowledge fault, and easy to extend forgiveness. It's a wonderful principle to feel within a marriage relationship. I can repent to my spouse, I could acknowledge my failings and my sin, and I could count on being graciously received by them. And I am so eager and so ready, if my spouse sins against me, I want to forgive them. I want to extend grace. It's true in marriage and it's true in the church. Happy churches are churches where it's easy to repent and it's easy to forgive. That's a healthy church culture, a life-giving church environment. There's nothing more life-giving than knowing that not only am I enabled by the gospel to extend grace to my brothers and sisters, but I can count myself. I'm being graciously received by them. We know we're all in this sinful mess together. My brothers and sisters aren't going to be surprised by my sin. If I offend them or disappoint them or sin against them, I can freely ask for their forgiveness and I can be sure that I will have it. And because God sent His Son into the world to die on the cross and save a wretch like me, how easy it is for me to extend forgiveness to my brothers and sisters who sin against me. You see, the gospel frees us to repent. It's not hard to admit I'm a sinner and I've offended you. And the gospel enables us to forgive, to extend grace to others. So I encourage you, brother and sister, if you're in the wrong, don't be slow to repent. Brother, I'm sorry. I spoke out of turn. That was wrong of me. Can I have your forgiveness? Sister, I'm sorry, that was an insensitive thing to say. Can I have your forgiveness? Now, what's so hard about that? Why is it so difficult for us to say those words? Are we afraid that if we say that, they might conclude that we're sinners and we need God's grace daily? That we need grace extended to us and forgiveness? We shouldn't be afraid of those words. We shouldn't be slow to repent. And similarly, should it really be hard for us to forgive one another? Brother, I absolutely forgive you. Let me tell you, Christ has had far worse from me, and he's cleansed me from all my sins. I can forgive you with ease. Sister, that's okay. Trust me, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I freely forgive you as Christ has freely forgiven me. That sort of attitude should just pervade the church. We can acknowledge our sin to each other. And we can know that our brother and sister is quick to extend grace. A proper understanding of sin and grace should make it easy to repent and easy to forgive. And as it was true in redemptive history, it should be true in the church where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Do you realize what joy and gladness this brings to a church, when they could be free to acknowledge sin, don't feel like my brother's keeping scores with me and yeah, he might forgive me but he's got a little list over here and my name's in there now. No, there's just freedom. I can confess my sin and I can know that my brother or sister's gonna receive me as Christ would. Free to repent, free to forgive. Fourthly and finally, if we understand sin and grace, we will sympathize with sinners who are lost outside of Christ. 
We will sympathize with sinners who are lost outside of Christ. Let me just ask that you listen as I read Titus 3 now in closing. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, you became the recipients of the unmerited, unearned favor and mercy of God. Everything that's true of the sinful people in your lives who are outside of Christ was true of you. But then something happened. The grace of God appeared to you. The goodness and loving kindness of God appeared to you. You were washed and you were changed, not by works done by you in the flesh, but by the unmerited mercy and favor of God. So how can we, sinners saved entirely by grace, be anything but sympathetic with lost people outside of Christ. You see, sinners outside the church, sinners outside the family of God, is your native impulse, your native instinct, disgust. Ugh, how can they act that way? How do they do those things? How do they be that way? Paul in this passage is introducing a note of humility Don't you know all those things were true of you? And there's only one thing that makes you different from them. It's not your holiness. It's not your good works. It's the unmerited and unearned favor and grace of God. And so I say that to you here today, if you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ, there really is only one difference between us and you. Just one difference. We're sinners just like you, We have sin struggles just like you. We have baggage just like you. There's one difference between us and you. And that is that we have been brought to receive the free grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. We have become the beneficiaries of the goodness and mercy and compassion and grace of God. That's the only difference. And the wonderful news I have to convey is that that same grace, that same mercy, that same compassion is available to all who come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. You can come knowing that you are a great sinner. In fact, you must come knowing that you are a great sinner. You must come like John Newton. Whether you acted out in all the flagrantly sinful ways that he did aboard slave ships in Africa, You must come to God like that woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her tears, who was known for being an immoral woman of the city. You must come like that. And you must plead only the grace of God. And I assure you, the Christians here in this room, we're pleading that same grace every day. We're still looking to God for that grace every day, holding out our little cup, asking Him to fill it with His grace and His mercy. 
And so all we're doing is commending to you that very same grace we depend on for our life and our salvation. And I tell you, that grace is available to you in Christ. If you come to him aware of your sin, aware of your need of grace, his promise is that he will save you and receive you and cleanse you from every stain of sin. Let's pray together. Our Father, where would we be without the grace of God? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be united in a body of fellow sinners seeking to live like a family of your people in this place. Rather, we would be choosing our own way, uh, far from you, far from your people, far from your word. We thank you that through grace you have sweetly drawn us into the family of your people. We thank you that you have implanted within us a gracious principle whereby we can convey grace to one another. We pray that grace would fill our relationships with each other, that we would be quick to forgive, that we would be eager in showing patience and forbearance with each other, that our relationships would be marked by the sort of love that commends the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, as you have shown us grace in your Son, and as you have forgiven us, help us to forgive one another and to show grace to each other. Give us the assurance, create such an environment in this place that we can be assured that when we sin, we will be graciously received by our brothers and sisters who will show to us the very compassion of Christ. If this is to pervade the life of this church, it must be worked by your Spirit and brought about by your grace. So do it, we pray. We pray that every soul now in this place would recognize their sinfulness and their need always of the grace of God. And may they be drawn to plead that grace before your throne. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.